Back in the 70s, board games and improv theater had a baby, and it was called the role-playing game. These games allowed a generation of kids to live out their dreams of slaying dragons and saving kingdoms, all while sitting in their bedrooms and basements. Today, gaming has moved into the cultural mainstream, and role-playing games are back with a vengeance. Join us now as five of these former kids come out of the basement and onto the internet to experience adventure, mystery, and obscure pop culture references. It's time for Roll for Combat. Hey everyone, welcome to Rule for Combat. I'm your GM and host, Steven Glicker, and this week's special episode, I sit down and talk with Paizo's Linda Zayas Palmer. We talk all about her brand new position in Paizo, we talk about her long and interesting road to Paizo, and we talk all about her brand new adventure, The Sandstone Secret. So Linda is one of my absolute favorite people at Paizo. Both Linda and Mark are a lot of fun, and Linda has a really interesting background. She came to Paizo through a fascinating series of events, which we will get into in the interview, and she also rode one of my new favorite adventures, the Sandstone Secret, which is a quest adventure. I really like this idea of these quests. They're super tiny adventures that can be run in an hour. They usually just have like one social encounter, or maybe one hazard and trap, and then one combat encounter and that's it and this is going to actually be kind of a two-parter the first part is i sit down and talk with linda and interview her and then the second part is that we're going to actually play the sandstone secret and i'm going to release that in a week or so i'm going to give you a little bit of a spoiler we thought oh we're going to play this adventure how hard could it be how deadly could it be there's only going to be one combat encounter well let me tell you something this was, perhaps, one of the craziest, most deadly, most complex adventures I've ever run in my entire life, and that is like 42 plus years of actually playing Pathfinder, D&D, and every other role-playing game under the sun. That's right, one little encounter would test my skills as a GM to its absolute limits. Not only that, Mark Steifer himself had to get involved. We had to use every ounce of brain power to figure out this one encounter. I tell you, this thing is epic beyond epic, but you're going to have to wait at least a week before that comes out. I have no idea how long we actually played for. It definitely was longer than an hour, but I'm going to have to edit that episode and then I'll put it up. I'm going to try to have it up by next week, but I am going to have it up. I promise you that. And this is crazy. But with that, let's get to this week's interview with Linda. Hey everyone, Steve here, and I have a treat for you. I have the newly christened, organized play lead developer, Linda Zayas Palmer, on with me today. And we're going to talk all about society. Isn't that right? How are you doing, Linda? Doing well today. How are you doing, Steven? I'm doing great. We got a fair amount to cover because a lot has gone on recently. There was a whole bunch of changes in the society team, and you have a brand new title, Organized Play Lead Developer. What is that? Yeah, so Organized Play Lead Developer um, basically means that, well, we have a Starfinder Society and Pathfinder Society and the Pathfinder Adventure Card Society. 
So I'm the one who really touches all three programs. Um, and that means I'm also going to be handling a lot of time management, organizing tasks, delegating things, making sure that things get through on time and approvals of various products as well. So you're going to just be really, really busy. You're sort of like the traffic person for all society at this point in a way. In a way, yeah. But I mean, we have uh, Mike and uh, Thirsty, Thurston Hellman, um, who both do a really great job. So it's not like I don't have great folks to work with on that end. And I also work closely with Tanya as the organized play manager. She's the one who really manages the the overall trajectory of the campaign, as well as um, things that have to do with the program and stuff like that. So before we get into that, I actually wanted to go back and talk about your history, because you have a really interesting history of how you came to Paizo. What was your background? Because weren't you like in Massachusetts just playing and GMing like a massive amount? How did you get into role-playing and Pathfinder exactly? Yeah, so I first got into role-playing as in tabletop role-playing games as opposed to the video games because I played the video games since I was a little kid. But I first got into tabletop role-playing games actually when I first met Mark. The first day that I met him was the day that he recruited me to his 3.5 game. That um, was in college, and I played that 3-5 game for several years. And then eventually Pathfinder came out, um, and um, he and I played that some at Gen Con. And um, our group eventually switched over to Pathfinder with the Rise of the Rune Lords Adventure Path. Um, it was time to start a new campaign, and uh, Mark put out a poll to say, okay, what adventure do you most want to do? And there were a lot of ideas in there, and the one that ran out was Rise of the Rune Lords. So that transferred us all over to Pathfinder. And really, we've been playing Pathfinder in our home group ever since. And um, that started out, too. We played a lot. Uh, we played Rune Lords for a bit. But then uh, it was a college group, and things kept breaking up. We didn't really have as much of a consistent group for an ongoing story. So we actually, at that point, turned to Pathfinder Society. And... Um, Mark looked at a lot of these scenarios that had sort of the Shadow Lodge plot arc that was pretty prevalent in, in season two and stitched those together into a bit of a mini campaign. So we played those with our home group. And then also at the same time, the at the time venture captain Don Walker of Massachusetts was just getting play off the ground in the Boston area. And so he put out a call on the Paizo forums to say, hey, does anyone want to come play? We're just going to try to get a few people together to do a game at this uh, local game store, Pandemonium. And that's where we started with more public organized play in addition to like we play at Gen Con. But that's where I really got into GMing for organized play myself because we kept coming back to those games at Pandemonium. I started GMing. We started then coordinating the games for the store. We became venture lieutenants. So we were then volunteer organizers for that store and at conventions and other things like that. And I mean... At a certain point, we were um, we were running usually one to two games every Sunday, and also our home group was doing Pathfinder on Saturdays. So pretty much my entire weekend was Pathfinder for over a year there. But didn't you get to? weren't you like five star GM eventually? Yeah, I'm a five star GM. I got five star shortly before I uh, before I started with Paizo. How many games did you run? Because I'm like two star. I think. I mean, I don't run that. I run. 
I run society at sort of the big events, but I'm mostly running just, you know, obviously um, adventure paths and my own games. But that is a lot, a lot of games, especially back then. That's a lot. Yeah, I'm up to like 170 something now since I haven't. It's 150 and other requirements for the fifth star. And I haven't actually GM'd um, society adventures that much since starting at Paizo. I just really haven't had the time. And a lot of the other ones I may have done are things like, oh, this is a this is a playtest conversion of something to the playtest that doesn't technically have an adventure because I'm just doing this own thing. Or same thing with second edition running conversions of special events. So who got five stars first, you or Mark? Is Mark five star or is he four star? He's five and he got there first. But we like to joke that it was because um, the adventure paths that he had run were sanctioned for organized play credit faster than the ones that I had run. So he cheated. Basically. Yeah. Okay. So how did you get involved with Paizo? What prompted you to start writing, get involved with Paizo, and, uh, well, end up where you are now? Yeah. So I um, I really enjoyed playing. And I was, at a time in my life, it was sort of a transitional time. I was thinking of getting into grad school and um moving forward with various other aspects of my life. And I had kind of a, a lull where I had some things going on and I still wanted something to do though. So I started getting into freelance and I wrote uh, some things for uh, Wayfinder magazine. I think it was issue 11. And then I started writing for some third parties and I started writing for Paizo. And that was just something that I found that I really enjoyed and I got positive feedback from that. And I was thinking when this job came up, I did not think that there was any way that I was possibly going to get it. And, but Mark convinced me to apply anyway. And I did. And uh, one of the things that I was really grateful for with the way that um, the application process works for jobs on the sort of editorial creative team is that we have blind testing. So we take anonymized tests and then you get called back for interviews based on that in your resume. So I knew going in, that like, there's no way that I was hired just because I'm with Mark or anything, right? It's because I took this test and they saw how I did without my name attached. And I feel like that also really helped me too, because I didn't, from the other direction that I didn't have as much writing experience professionally, right? I was a home GM mostly. And of course, a Pathfinder Society voracious GM and player as well. So how, how did it, not to, I want to attach you and Mark at the hip, but how did it work between, because you and Mark are together, and I've been together for something like 11 years. So how did it work out? Did Mark get hired and then you got hired? Or it seems it seems amazing that you started playing this game together and then you both get hired together. It seems like a one in a million shot. He got hired. Uh, he got hired actually about a year before I did. And so, I mean, this was really his dream job. So, and I was, I'd finished grad school and I was starting to look for uh, teach positions and things like that. But I figured I can be a teacher anywhere. Um, so let's move out here and let's follow this dream. Right. And then when that other job came up, like I said, I didn't think that I, I thought it sounded awesome, but I didn't think they'd hire me, but Mark convinced me to apply and I got it. So then, yeah, no, we work at the same place. We walk to work together every morning and we walk back most days too. So it's a good thing you guys get along so well because you even do your new Arcane Mark show, which is so much fun. I think the quote was, I love the show and I hate streaming shows. I think that was the quote. That is exactly what you said, yeah. Well, you know why? Because streaming shows, I find, are really 
they're very slow. Like if you watch most streamers, most of it is dead air. And as someone who's a big Howard Stern fan, Howard Stern always goes on and says how much work and how hard it is to fill four or five hours a day every day. And you know what it is? It's really, really, really hard to fill all that airtime. But Mark and you, you guys talk and you guys talk voraciously. So the show is never boring. The show just goes and goes and goes. And it's like two hours flies by. And uh, it's, it's just a lot of fun, that show. Yeah, I'm glad you like it. It's uh, twitch.tv slash arcane mark. And um, we stream uh, Pacific time. It's 7 p.m. on Tuesdays and Thursdays and also at 10 a.m. on Saturdays. So, yeah, and it's at least an hour each time. And you guys just talk about pretty much anything. It looks like it's very free form. I mean, you have kind of a structure to it, but you do interviews with people at Paizo and you just talk about various topics that have to do with, I think it's been mostly Pathfinder. I don't know if you've been doing Starfinder stuff as well, but it seems at least, well, right now, mostly Pathfinder because that's the that's the game du jour. Certainly we could talk about Starfinder at some point in the future, but um, with Mark on that show too, especially with second edition coming out, that is what we've been talking about more. And some of our topics are a little more system agnostic. Um, we put out polls to see what people want us to talk about. And the most popular ones, by and large, are the ones that we call GM tools, where we basically talk about things like designing good encounters and how do you set up an investigation and what happens if the PCs fly off the rails and things like that. Yeah, no, it's a really fun show. I just can't believe you're doing it three days a week and you're and you're doing it because that's the hardest part is doing these shows because everyone starts off thinking, oh, I'll do the show. And then usually by the second month, you're realizing they went from fun to kind of a second job and most people kind of tailor off, but you guys are still doing it. We're in episode 42 or something like that at this point. So there you go. So you must like it. What was your first position at Paizo? My first position was assistant developer. Um, and at that time I was hired on to assist John Compton. Um, John Compton then was the only developer for uh, Pathfinder Society, which was also the well we had pathfinder society there and then we also had cards which were um tanis o'connor was handling but that was sort of off in its own lane talking with the people who make the pathfinder adventure card game loan shark um and we have some meetings together but it was very much a here we have these two programs and that's what it is and um at that time also the uh organized play coordinator was mike brock who was the coordinator for many years. So I, so John was started, then I started. And then um, a little, a little while after that, then Tanya started. And then once Starfinder became a thing, um, we all knew that we needed to have an organized play program for um, Starfinder as well. So then Starfinder society spun up and we bought thirsty on board and oh my goodness, was that a ride? And then we just did that whole ride again when it comes to um launching a new campaign for second edition. Yeah, there's been a lot going on because from what I've been hearing, I mean, I've been around since uh, I remember Mike, Mike Brock and I used to hang out a lot when he was still there. And, you know, it was kind of, you know, society was always big, but it seemed almost like, I don't know, it was very kind of more relaxed in a way when Mike was there. And then once Starfinder came about and Tonya took over, things really exploded. It got really crazy suddenly, like almost out of nowhere. 
Yeah, well, we have um, a lot of ideas. And as the programs grow and you get more and more people, uh, one of the things that I find really interesting to watch uh, and something that comes up in these meetings is the uh, how many different um, regional venture coordinators we have. So the, the people who are the top volunteers who manage entire regions and how we keep having to add more and split things and shift things around because there's so many people that it just gets overwhelming for, for one person. So we have to say, okay, well here, now let's split this region in two. Yeah. In fact, I, I myself am a venture officer, believe it or not. The first discord lodge ever was the role for combat discord lodge. And we just started our hundred and first table uh, for game day just recently. So but I'm probably the laziest venture officer around because they they run all the games. I just sort of manage everything behind the scenes. I, I've become officially, I guess that's what happens when you become the organizer. You end up no longer running or playing the games. You just have to spend all your time managing and organizing them. But that's such an important role to have someone doing the managing and organizing. I mean, anyone who's ever done organizing for a convention knows too that there's a lot that goes into it. There's a lot of logistics. There's a lot of people to manage. People have timings. People need to get certain resources for things. So it is, it's an important job. And sometimes I find that it can be a thankless one. So I just want to say that, you know, if your players and GMs don't tell you that they appreciate you, um, that, you know, I really appreciate all the work that, um, that you and other organizers put in to make these events work. It's just fun because I actually wanted to do it because I live in New York and New York is weird because people think, oh, New York, you can must be able to play all the time because there's like, what, 20 million people in New York? And the answer is no. There's nowhere to play in New York. No one plays in New York. There's no there's no real estate. You know, it's just a very, very hard place to play organized play. So we play online like I play online almost exclusively. And that's what I was mostly interested in. And that's when I met uh, Hillary Moon Murphy. And I kind of like play by post, but to me, it's a little too slow. That's why I do play by discord because play by discord is really fast. And I wanted to get it off the ground and I started it up about a year and a half ago. We were kind of like the test case. And as soon as I put out word that I was going to start it, we, we opened up six tables in one day and it just exploded and then it got sanctioned. And ever since then we have usually, you know, at least, 50 tables going on simultaneously at the minimum so yeah it's great that you can play so many different ways you can play online you can play on discord you can play on play by post you can play through vtt you can play obviously in person the most traditional way you can play at home if you want you don't even have to go somewhere you can have your own home games it's just it's really great and i do like the organized play not that we do it. We it's one of the things where we always say we wanted to do it more, although we never do, but we we will try to do it more because it's fun <laughs> being able to play with anyone, anywhere at any time, and have all these new adventures. And I also like the way it's written now. I think it was hard because everything was written for six people, and now it's written for four people, and then you bring it up. So I feel that it's actually a little bit better balanced now that you've designed it for second edition. It's kind of some of the changes you've made to the balance. I think it's definitely going to help to have the uh, the scaling for different numbers of people and the new uh, and the new challenge point system for second edition as well. 
is a lot more versatile than the average party level system. So it fixes the problem that, you know, some people had in with just using average party level is that you could run into cases where you add a PC to a table and now the GM needs to run an easier adventure. Or conversely, you take a PC away from the table and then the adventure becomes harder. So with the more granular scaling, what we're really looking to do is make it so that it's easier to have a fair adventure for your players. Who came up with that math? Because I looked at that math and it is, it's not too complex, but it's complex. Like there's a lot of variations because you take what is it, the lowest and the medium and the highest level, and then you assign numeric values to it. And then you figure out based on that number is where you should run the adventure. And it could be anywhere. Like you can have four people, but you run it as equivalent of six players because you might have higher level players playing with you and so forth. So it's not just your average party level. It's does, it does a whole bunch of calculations and it seems to really, uh, it really seems to work in a lot of different ways. That was uh, two people who worked on that challenge point system. So it was John Compton and I'm sure it wouldn't surprise you to hear that Mark was also heavily involved. Oh, really? I was surprised that Mark had to do something with math and and balance systems as that's all he ever talks to me about since I'm like the only person who ever wants to listen to him drone on about math for hours at a time. I'm a math major, so I wouldn't say that you're the only one. Okay. You and me are the only ones who want to hear him drone on about math all the time. I actually power him from no direction. He and I talk about that. The math is the engine that makes these games run, even if no one ever wants to talk about it. But without the math, everything else is secondary. The role-playing is nice and all, but everything really boils down to the math. Yeah, making sure that there is a fair challenge, that it's a system where you have a lot of options that you can pick for your characters, and all the characters can really feel different. But fundamentally, you're going to be facing something that feels exciting to overcome, without being overwhelming or unfair. And, you know, the math is really at the core of that. So do you get to use your math major in this position of yours in any way? Do you, like, help out a little bit with some of these formulas in the background, some of the game design? So I use it more often when I'm doing freelance because I do freelance as well for other lines. Um, and I've done things for a variety of books in the... Um, some of the hardcover books and the role-playing game lines and um, player companions and things like that. But it also does inform some things too. Uh, like for example, their, um, the mechanics for in first edition, when you have a lot of players who are all rolling for a single check, determining what a fair DC for that check is. Uh, because what I would have seen in a lot of previous adventures is that maybe it's like, oh, everyone's rolls, just give it a plus two. But no, it's actually a lot more in-depth than that. You have to assume that um, it's something like the the player with the lowest bonus is going to be rolling like a 17 or 18. And like that's the bare minimum that you would expect because once you get all these dice coming together, then um, what you actually expect, those numbers that are create an appropriate challenge, they can kind of be a sticker shock when people look at them. But that's what the math tells you. So what are you doing now as the organized play lead developer? We talked a little bit about like in general, but one of the things that you're in charge of is quests. Can you explain what this quest line is? Yeah. So a standard 
um, Pathfinder or Starfinder Society scenario is designed to be played in four to four and a half hours. It has somewhere between three and five encounters, generally depending upon the level and the complexity of the encounters. Um, so the idea behind that is that that's good for a game night. Um, but there's a lot of cases where people are looking for something that is a shorter form. So whether they're doing something like this episode where people want something that's just quick to listen to and enjoy, whether they're um, they're at a game store where they don't have time to sit down for five hours because that slot isn't open for that long, or if they're at a convention and people just want to sit down and try something out, the shorter form can really be useful in a lot of ways. So quests generally have one encounter, um, and then they may also have something that's a little smaller than the main encounter, like some kind of a trap or a hazard or a bit of a social bit or something like that. Um, but it's definitely a shorter form factor. But this is legal for society play because you have the new system where instead of having three adventures and then you level up, you're using almost points, like hour points. So it takes on average 12 hours to have your character level up with a regular adventure counting for four points. And now the quests count for one point. So you can either do 12 quests and level up your character or three larger society adventures. Yeah, because we had quests before um, that are organized into quest packs. And then that was a little bit awkward when you have the idea that one scenario gives one XP and that's it. The quests have to give this weird fraction of an experience point, And then the different ways we adjudicated that, it just wasn't really as clean. So the idea where it's just you do a quest, that's the basic unit that gives you one XP. And so quests can really be part of your character's story without having to do things where you keep track of, wait, did I finish out the sheet where I was tracking all the quests that I was doing? No? Okay, I guess I can't go back to that one because I started this other adventure. It was just rather complicated, and I'm glad to have a more streamlined system. So right now there's only one quest out, the Sandstone Secret, that was written by you. That's right, you wrote this little adventure that we're going to run right after this interview, and we're going to see how deadly you made it. So you guys are all level one, so I should be running level four and five encounters, correct? No, that's not how that works. No? But, there's, but oh. um, to, to another point, there are no level five encounters. Unlike uh, first edition Pathfinder Society, but like uh, Starfinder Society, um, in second edition, Pathfinder Society has uh, only four levels in each tier. So it's a one to four scenario. Uh, that gets rid of that kind of weird gap level in the middle where you would have a, a scenario for level one to five characters that had a mode for level one to two characters and a mode for level four to five characters. And then you have like, what do you do if you have all third level characters? And that was a little more complicated as well. Aha. Oh, I was getting confused because there's some creatures in here that are creature six. So six level creatures. I think you'll be OK. I, I think you could take it on. I know you guys like a challenge, right? Six level creatures are not appropriate for first level PCs, Steven. Okay. All right. All right. We'll do that later. Actually, Mark was saying that there's that new mode that you, it sounds like you invented it. We didn't invent it, but there was uh, someone, I think, on the Paizo forums with a handle that had anguish in its name. And so then Mark was calling it anguish mode for if you accidentally play um, a version that's adjusted for characters several levels higher than you. Yeah, that was right. So his name, right, his name was Anguish. 
And so it sounded like a good idea. So I saw that it was like called anguish mode, which I love because then you can try it out. And I guess it's not official. And obviously, if your characters die, they can come back to life. But you can it has a new fun flavor where you can like run it a full tier higher than it should be just for the challenge of it. Obviously, for I don't know if you'd really want to do that for a full, you know, society adventure because those already take four or five hours. But for quests, they're perfect because a quest is like an hour. So you can just run it and then run it again in anguish mode and just see how you do. Yeah, I mean, because what you'll get is you'll get these encounters that are balanced for, oh gosh, this should never be thrown at PCs. Like, just never. But never is fun. Never is shows you if, yeah, but if you get through it, then, then you realize you're that much better than the system. Yes, it's certainly a good way to get bragging rights. As long as people don't think that's like actually how the system is balanced. That's okay. That's okay. Well, you know, I I might have to do a little bit of anguish mode, and I was going to put in a squirrel swarm, but it wasn't really appropriate for this adventure, but I am going to stat up a squirrel swarm and have that in there. I thought leshy swarm, but that's not nearly as funny as a squirrel swarm. It's also hard to say. Well, um, there is a leshy swarm in first edition. I wrote a spell that lets you summon a swarm of tiny leshies. In first edition, but not in second edition. And I'll tell you, so your character took the summon insect or fungus, I believe it is, for first level. Yeah. Except for one problem is that it's minus one creature. That creature doesn't exist in the in the bestiary, by the way. Is there not a level minus one insect or fungus? No, there is not. I looked carefully because I was going to put it in the program. There is a level zero, but there is no level minus one. In that case, I'll prepare a different spell. What? No. <laughs> Fix the bestiary. Quick, Linda, write up a monster. We can make it unofficially official. There you go. I can't just create a monster on the fly. <laughs> it's second edition. It takes like five minutes. I've created tons of monsters and just... Actually, don't tell uh, uh, Ron that, that, how fast I write your monsters. Or maybe do tell him and then get more freelance because you get known as someone who's both reliable and fast. Okay, I will tell him that. Fungus starts at level 9. And you have Fungus, you only have level 9, level 19, and level 21. And then, yeah, Plant is level 0, Leaf Leshy. And level 1, level 2. Level 3, level 4, level 6, 8, 10, and 15. But no minus 1. So until you guys come out with some new... uh, New monsters, that spell's kind of uh, it's kind of a brick. I uh, I just asked Mark, he doesn't have anything more to announce on um, on future products for that. Oh, okay. <laughs> what is going to be happening with quests down the road? Or is it just for Pathfinder? Are they going to be Starfinder quests? Or are these coming out every month? Like, now there's only one out. So what's, what's the long-term path for these? Well, we have one that's just finished development and another one that's in. And I'm going to be ordering a couple more. So this is, quests are definitely something that we want to continue doing. We have them certainly on the on the docket through the end of 2019. Uh, we do not have our 2020 everything completely finalized yet, but it's certainly a very valuable resource, both for the short adventures from the perspective of giving people more things to play, and also from an author recruitment perspective, because it's a lot easier to give someone who's never written an adventure before something that is 
you know, 2,500 words to chew on and then to teach them through that process than to say, okay, let's throw you in the deep end. This is 10,000 words. And if this doesn't work out well, then and the developer ends up having to rewrite a lot of stuff and it, it knocks the schedule out of whack and all that kind of thing. So quests are um, really the key way that we like to onboard authors. And are all the quests going to be kind of like yours? And yours is almost like randomized choose your own adventure so that you can go through it multiple times and not have the same encounters? Or is that just really for yours? That is for adventures that have the repeatable tag. So both quests and scenarios can have the repeatable tag. Um, repeatable adventures take longer to put together and they can be a little more complicated to look at and run. So we're not looking to make everything repeatable, but certainly particularly in this first year, having more repeatable options makes it easier for people to get more replay out of their adventures. And then the name repeatable also, as it implies, people can continue to play those adventures for credit for their characters. Yeah, I do like these repeatable quests. They are obviously more complex to run, but at least you get a lot more bang for your buck in that you can you know, play with them with different characters and always have something a little different and not always expect exactly what's going to happen. In fact, we're going to be running the adventure that you yourself wrote, but you won't even know what's going to happen because you don't know because it can be one of six different items. Yeah, I don't know where we're gonna where we're gonna find things and what we're gonna fight and what's gonna be going on with NPCs in the adventure, that kind of thing. There you go. So it works for everybody, even the author herself. What are some of the favorite things you've ever developed for Paizo over the years? I saw you wrote you wrote some monsters, you said. Like what are some of your favorite monsters you've ever designed? Oh goodness. Uh, I've designed a lot of monsters. Favorite questions are hard. Um there's one, the gravebound. That, is, that I like, which is an undead that is themed after the idea of being buried alive. And it has a shovel that's kind of stuck in its back. So the idea is that if you defeat it, then you also have a shovel that you can use to bury, unbury your allies from their premature grave. And it also has a curse where if you it um, sort of saps away people's charisma, and if their charisma is reduced to zero, they don't die or anything, but they look dead unless you succeeded a heal check. So then people are likely to be buried alive and then wake up underground later on. See, that's great. Was that so hard? You're like, oh, I hate it. And then you had one ready to go, which is like a cool ass monster. That wasn't so bad. Well, I've been asked this question before, but I have a lot of other ones I like. Like the little, uh, like Chew Speaky, um, a little tail, a little fan tailed flying chinchilla monster with air kinetics powers. What about your PCs? Because... You must have had a million PCs when you were running a society play. Do you have any special ones that you fondly remember? And is this new one you have for tonight, is this like a brand new PC or is this kind of a reimagined first edition one into second edition? No, my PC is brand new. Um, I figured I wanted to play a Leaf Order Druid because I wanted a Leshy Companion, but... Um, I thinking back on it, I don't think I've played an elf in society yet. No, oh, so this will this will be your first elf. And what's this thing with you guys and leashies? Well, you guys, everyone loves leashies. I don't know why. I mean, they're they're cute and all, but people just go gaga for these little things. So leshies are really cute, and I like them. And it's one of those things where you know when you when you start with something and then you make a commitment to it, and it just keeps kind of snowballing. So. I, I like Fleshies a lot, and I also like trolling John Compton, who likes to uh, who likes to play the um, sort of the stern, no nonsense type role. 
Um, so I started putting up more and more pictures of Leshies around. I put them on our door. He, he kept going, oh gosh. So of course I needed to continue escalating. And, um, and then I started getting things like I got a, I have a crocheted sunflower Leshy that I got as a present from a friend. I have a, a cactus, uh, a cactus Leshy art that another friend drew me. I had a googly eyed cactus named Cactus Leshy for a while. So it's one of those things where it's hard to tell where my natural liking of them is a cute creature that looks kind of funny and maybe might be misunderstood starts where my having fun trolling my coworkers puts into that. And now I just love them. And it's interesting too how many other people at the company really appreciate them too. So you're basically saying everyone should send John Compton as many pictures of Leshies as possible. If you want to do that, I hope he tells me because that would be friggin' hilarious. Okay. Well, we are making your character art with the same artist that did the Fall of Plaguestone characters. So you're going to have your character art with that awesome looking Leshy. And the Leshy looks kind of badass if, if you saw that, that character sketch. It's not like a cute little Leshy. It's kind of a kind of very demotic it has little sickle arms and it, it looks kind of mean well leshies don't have to all be cute too i mean especially look at the fungus leshy and things like that but they they're there's also kind of a cuteness that's associated with things that are creepy at the same time and i find that highly appealing that, that explains a lot now that i understand that about you you learn new things every day there you go so what were some of your favorite society adventures that you ran because you've obviously ran so many. Are there any of that were some of your old-time favorites? Well, the favorite society adventure that I've run, gosh, picking a single one. I mean, it I can be appreciate more a one. lot of them. It can be more than one. I've I've had a lot of fun with... The one I've run the most at this point is actually a modification of an existing one. So the, uh, the out-of-retirement version of Eternal Obelisk that I've run, I think, seven times now. So that, that one's always been been good fun. Well, I also really enjoyed running Immortal Conundrum, um, which is one of the earlier scenarios to have a really deep social aspect to it. So that's one I've run a fair bit too. And the idea that you have a scenario that has the social aspect as the primary focus, and then the combat happens afterwards and it's kind of secondary. I mean, certainly we have a lot more of those now, but at the time that really was revolutionary to me. And so that one sticks out in my mind. Um, I find that I get more specifically attached to scenarios that I've written or things that I've worked on um, as a developer than I did as uh, as a GM, in part because most scenarios I only GM'd once because we were running for the same group and I was always looking to have more variety to it. Do you get to actually GM the scenarios that you write? Is that a, something you get to often do? I've gotten to GM um, one of them, Reaping What We Sow, several times, and that one has certainly been a delight. What are you actually playing on your own? Uh, are you in like a game currently, like between you and Mark? Do you play with uh, some of the Paizo guys? I know they're in a lot of games. Do you play with a separate group? Or where, what do you guys actually do on your spare time when you're not, oh, I don't know, doing this or doing your Twitch streaming or, you know, working? So Mark's running a game of War for the Crown in second edition. We are well into book five at this point, actually. So that's been running along swimmingly. We started in the playtest and then um, converted 
beyond the 1.6 update to the playtest, we kept updating and updating and updating every time the design team had something new. So we were updating every single week after that. But there was some good playtest data that came out of that. And now um, it's a lot of fun just to be running it in second edition with finalized rules. And it's going really smoothly. Um, other than that, we're playing in uh, Ron Landine is writing a game of another RPG, The Strange, that we play sometimes. Um, I play the Pathfinder Adventure card game at work as well pretty much every week. And Mark's joined that game now, too. So usually he's there when I'm gaming, honestly. <laughs> it just seems that way. Yeah, I actually uh, I actually also ran The Strange. That was uh, It's a pretty pretty good system. The, the world building is awesome in that game. The idea that you have these alternate universes that are created from fictional worlds and that's actually a thing that's there, it's so delightfully meta. It is. It's actually very much like Nine Princes of Amber, though, because that's kind of, if you ever read that, the Zielny, Zielny series, it's like, you know, and obviously a very famous old-fashioned series where there was infinite Earths and they were all mirror images of Amber, which was like the original Earth. It's fun to play around with, especially the idea that you have um, Arden or however that's supposed to be pronounced, that alternate universe that's based on a, a fantasy RPG that will like actually literally use video game conventions in it. And you, the characters know video games and they also know that the universe uses video game conventions. But it sounds like, yeah, you guys, so you started off with first edition, War for the Crown. Then you slowly convert it to second edition. You're up to book five. So for book six, I think you should convert it over to Starfinder. <laughs> We've converted enough already. No, I'm happy just to play in second edition. We did play um, a converted version of uh, Rise of the Rune Lord. It's called Rise of the Star Lords um, in uh, playtesting Starfinder. And that was basically Rise of the Rune Lords plus a bajillion bad puns and references to current events. See, that's the type of stuff people would love to see if it was like unofficially released or something. Even just reading through that sounds like fun. Well, we had uh, instead of Turtleback Fairy, we had a giant turtle that was like flying through space. Uh, instead of Magnamar, there was the Lava Planet, Man Lava Planet Magmar 5. No, it sounds it sounds like a lot of fun. So what is in the future for Pathfinder Society? I've went through a lot of the changes in a previous interview with Tonya that I don't really want to go through right now with you. So you can listen to that interview if you want to listen to all the changes coming up with Pathfinder Society since the second edition came out. But are there any big things you can tell us going on with, say, the storyline, or obviously we have all these new factions, or just in general what we should be looking out for in the near future? Well, this season, Year of the Open Road really is looking to focus on bringing the Pathfinder Society back to its roots, because we found that in past seasons, it was kind of a joke with the interactive specials. We were When we sat down to plan... Um, what would become 900 Assault on Absalom, we said to ourselves, we went back in time and then we went to outer space in the last two. Where the heck do we go from here? There's just this sense of escalating mission creep and it just has to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And as it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, it also starts to pull away from, okay, but why is the Pathfinder Society even doing this anymore, right? We started off with the idea that we have this 
league of archaeologists and explorers. And so I wanted to bring it back to that, both so that we would keep the theming consistent and also to make it easier for people who are joining in to not have to learn all of this deep, complex um, interactions and things like that. And another thing that we realized with that is, well, we went back in time and we went to outer space and we went to the plains and we did all this other kind of stuff, but we didn't actually really explore the history of the Pathfinder Society, which it seems like maybe we might have done in 11 years, but we didn't. So that's one of the things that we're looking at here too, is a season that goes back and reveals new truths about the history of the Pathfinder Society uh, that allows people to explore new locations, some of which have never appeared in any Paizo product. Um, and that gives people a chance to really help to shape the, the new direction of things. And uh, with the factions, uh, what we're really looking for now is factions that are based on why people are Pathfinders. What is it that motivates them? Um, rather than external forces that are pushing on the society. Because again, there's this idea that the society itself was getting pulled in so many different directions. But what does it really mean to be a pathfinder? Let's get back to the basics there. And so the new factions came both from that sense. Um, and also um, two of our factions, the uh, the Envoys Alliance, which is sort of the, the pathfinder union, people looking out for each other, trying to move the Pathfinder Society's policies to be more concerned about individual agents and, and working together, helping each other out. Um, and um, the Verdant Wheel, the nature faction, both of those were not on our initial list. But what we did was we came up with a list of ideas for what would be seeds for factions. And we put those out to a poll. And then we also had a thing at the bottom of the poll that says, if you have any ideas that aren't covered by this, please suggest them here. And then the, there were two standout ideas that came from those write-in suggestions. And those were the nature faction and the faction about people who actually care about their fellow pathfinders. So that's where those two factions came from. And then the old factions, a lot of them were either destroyed or have been scattered since the uh, Whispering Tyrant got free. Is that correct? So the old factions are stepping back in prominence, but... If you look at um, scenario 1-01, Absalom Initiation, um, in that scenario, we really present where those other faction leaders are because it's not that they just disappeared off the face of the earth or Galerian in this case. They have other things that they're now doing, other goals that they have and objectives that they're pursuing. Some of them, some of them got promotions. Some of them decided that maybe they should actually go spend more time with their family. You know, there's a lot of different things that happen with those leaders, but not, no one... Between the latter scenarios in season 10 and Absalom initiation, there aren't any faction leaders who we're not saying what happened to them next. But this is a nice way to kind of soft reset because it's been 10 plus years, if you count season zero of Pathfinder Society. And it would be hard to get people into the game with all that history. So you're able to kind of do a soft reset and then even just reset the whole Pathfinder Society of, as you said, sort of doing self-reflection, because I was thinking about it while you were describing that. I don't really know that much about the, you know, it's like through kind of backstory you do, but not through direct adventures. A lot of them had to do with, okay, here's your assignment, go run off and save this thing. And that was pretty much 95% of those adventures. And that's why it's a big goal of this season to 
start to get back into more of what does it mean to be a pathfinder. That informed the uh, faction system, and that also informed the training system, where PCs um, decide how was their training process with the Pathfinder Society. Did they affiliate more with the the scrolls, who are about knowledge and information and preserving history? Did they affiliate more with the spells, who are about well, magic? Or did they affiliate more with the swords, who are about martial prowess and survival skills and other things like that. So by having the selection that goes into character creation for Pathfinder Society of how did you train? And then also having the factions that say, well, why are you a Pathfinder? What are your goals? The idea is to bring people in more from the very beginning into the what it means to be a Pathfinder. What about the um the harder adventures. I'm trying to mind the ones that Jason wrote. The um, bone keep. Bone keep. Are you going to do some more bone keep type adventures? Because those seem to be very popular. Bone keep adventures that only have that really hard mode with them. They're popular with small circles, but when we looked at the data for the community as a whole, they weren't as popular. So what I would expect to see more of is adventures that have hard mode options that uh, GMs and players can turn on if everybody at the table wants to, rather than adventures that are only applicable to people who really want to challenge. So you're saying that I'm insane and I'm in the minority because I know me and all of our players would probably only want to do hard mode. I didn't say that, but I will say that, you know, I think that it would be a relatively small group of people who would necessarily want to play the the anguish mode but if that's what you are interested in doing i mean society scenarios aren't only to be played exactly following the rules of society for society credit people can just take them and adapt them and play them however they want oh so like tonight i got it i now have permission from the author herself to adapt and change it as needed good i mean (laughs) Given that this is the uh, given that this is going to be one of the earliest times that people see this adventure and earliest times that they see things with second edition, I would prefer for you to run it as it is rather than introducing confusion Aww. and then having people online say like, "Oh, wait, no, that wasn't how it's supposed to be," or "Oh, that looks too hard" and stuff like that. But you know, if we then wanted to late run it run it as again in a special mode that had other weird stuff going on that could possibly be a sequel episode or something like that, I totally do. Well, you're really worried about me doing this. I you don't know me that well. I'm totally joking. I won't do that. I won't really do that. Will I? Could I? I'm really. I'm actually. See, I talk a big game. I'm actually. I talk about being a really nasty killer GM, but I'm really not. I'm actually. I'm actually very very nice. Although I did kill off Param's first 2001 character, and I'm going to continuously tout that to the end of time that his very first Pathfinder Society 2 character is dead because I critted him three times in a row. Yeah. Oh no, Param's first character. Yeah, yeah. It happens. It happens. It was three 19s, and it was also on a trap that doesn't have um, reduced attacks modifiers there's no attack modifiers for the second and third attacks so they're all at you know whatever plus and so they were all crits so we went all the way down to dying six now according to mark he said we didn't think you can use the hero point but mark said he thinks you can use the hero point and would have brought him back down to dying two 
But Parham said, quote, that's not nearly as much fun, end quote. So I think even he approved of his own character dying. Well, hero points, you don't have to use them if you don't want to. That is true. That's right. It is optional. So if you want to let your character die, you can let your character die. Anything else you want to tell us about in the near future, Linda, to be on the lookout for? Any secrets that we should be looking out for, either in Pathfinder 2 or society in general? Uh, well, I will say that if you have seen the guide, as it is right now, the guide to organize play for second edition, that uh, that's not, its you may have heard that it's a wiki, it is not currently wiki, that is not its final form. Uh, we are working hard to revise a variety of things to make them work more smoothly. So if you have feedback, this is an excellent time to let us know. Excellent. So for those of you who are curious, we're going to be playing the Sandstone Secret by Linda, the quest. It's going to be myself, Linda, Mark, Chris, and John. And I'm going to play it as written, level one, nice and easy. We're going to do baby mode so everyone can hear exactly how it's supposed to be played. And then I'm going to dial it up to 11, and we're going to probably try anguish mode, and I'm just going to kill everyone off as brutally as possible. But be on the lookout for that in the very, very near future. Sounds good. Hey, everyone. Steve here. So once again, Linda, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Make sure you guys do check out Arcane Mark. I really enjoy watching them. They're incredibly entertaining, and they interact with the audience, and they are on all the time. It's at every Tuesday, every Thursday, and every Saturday. Both Mark and Linda do their live Twitch show, and it's at least an hour long, sometimes two hours. Do check it out. It's a lot of fun. And also, don't forget, do check out part two, which was going to come out in a week or so, of The Sandstone Secret, the most complex one hour of role-playing I ever experienced in my entire life. You are going to hear this thing, and wow, it is crazy. Hopefully it's fun to listen to. It was really fun to play. It also tests the limits of what Pathfinder 2nd Edition can do. I think you guys are going to be really surprised when you listen to this episode, For look for that soon. And also, those of you who are new to the show, do check out our actual play of The Fall of Plague Stone. We're up to episode 6, that's going along swimmingly. And of course, do check out episode 100, that's right, episode 100 of the Dead Sun's Adventure Path that we are playing through. Yeah, don't worry, you don't need to jump into episode 100. You could actually jump into episode 91, that will bring you up to speed, and everything that occurred from episode 0 to 90 is recapped so jump right into episode 91 if you don't want to listen to the previous 99 plus episodes of the dead sense adventure path but if you want to go right ahead it's really fun and the guys are awesome and finally, don't forget, we will have lots more interviews with lots of people from Paizo. We regularly have people in Paizo on our show. Now that the big Gen Con Pathfinder second release has sort of come and gone, things are coming down a little bit. That doesn't mean we're going to stop having people on the show. We're going to continue having people on the show talk about anything new that's coming out, talk about Pathfinder second edition. And now we're going to actually start talking about what to expect now that the initial wave of books have come out. Now we can start looking towards some of the new books, some of the new ancestries, new backgrounds, new classes, things like that that are coming out sooner than you think. So be on the lookout for that in the near future. Anyhow, with that, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you later.